The funny thing about the advertising industry is that if you break the rules long enough, your practices become the new rules. This is my conversation with John Follis. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't. And we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repton. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is John Follis, an advertising industry legend who in his career has bested smuckers along with a few schmucks. And for listeners seeking to do well in this world as humans and as business people, you would do well to listen in today. John, welcome to Truth Tastes Funny. Hey, glad to be here, Hirsch. Thanks for having me. John, like me, you're an alumnus of School of Visual Arts in New York. Yeah, yeah. I, I took a couple of night classes at SVA, but graduated Syracuse University and went through their advertising program. I took it very seriously. And the first advertising class I took, and like Advertising 101, which was taught by a guy from New York who would come up to teach, did not go well. And it was kind of a shock because any, any creative class I'd taken throughout my academic career, I did extremely well in, but not in this class. And I couldn't figure out why, other than the fact that I, I, I didn't really like the instructor a whole lot. I, I just thought he was really arrogant. And, you know, that's not a reason not to do well in the class. He basically gave me an option. He said, you're not doing well in the class. and I'm going to give you a choice. You can either drop the class right now or stick it out for the next three and a half weeks and take the grade that I'm going to give you. And I can't tell you what that grade is going to be, but I can tell you you're not going to be happy about it. So it really wasn't much of a choice. And I said, I asked him if I could think about it. He said, yeah, you, you got 24 hours. Let me know tomorrow what you want to do. And it was like someone throwing a, a glass of cold water on my face because I had always done throughout my schooling, I had always done well in any, any kind of creative class. And I, 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 uh, this was a shock. And as I was walking out the door, he gave me one last piece of advice, which, which was uh, do not go into advertising. <laughs> so which I is a up... very specific insult. Yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, yeah. a very specific kind of almost as a as a threat to you. Like, you know, don't you dare sully right. the industry of advertising with your lousy shit that you. <laughs> right, right. And when you hear that from someone who actually works on Madison Avenue and you're just a humble student you take those words pretty seriously. You take yeah. them to heart. I certainly did. The problem was I was more than halfway through my college education. My dad was spending some pretty big bucks on my tuition. And I was faced with the fact that I was being told that I suck at the career that I had recently decided I was going to pursue. So, you know, what do you do now? And that's what I had to think about over Christmas break. And because I really didn't have a plan B, I looked through the curriculum and found out that there were a couple of other instructors teaching the same class. And I kind of thought this guy was an asshole, and I was hoping it was as much about him than it was about my talent. So with that hope, I took the same class with a different instructor and got an A-. minus. Right. Well, that... There, there it is right there. You sometimes know in your heart. Like, I think you would have known if he was, I always tell my kids that if somebody gives you advice and your reaction is, yeah, you know, I, I agree with it. That's right. Then follow it. If your reaction is that's bullshit, they don't know what they're talking about. Then probably your barometer, you know, assuming you have decent judgment, your barometer is probably good on that. Good advice tells you oftentimes what you already know, but you just aren't well, seeing. I listen, I was just starting my curriculum in advertising. So admittedly, I didn't know a lot yeah. about advertising. And this, as I mentioned, this guy was a professional who was in the business who would come up 
each week to teach his class in advertising. Why he would want to do that, I don't know. But um, he clearly knew a lot about the business, and I assumed he knew what he was talking about when he told me not to go into advertising. So it wasn't so easy to think that he was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. from my, you know, my okay. way to, to help determine that was try it with a different instructor. Yeah. So now, what kind of background did you come from? What did your parents do? Well, I had kind of an interesting upbringing in that my dad was a business guy, an entrepreneur. And my mom was an art teacher. Oh. Which makes a good combination for someone to go into the advertising business. Yeah. My mom only taught a couple of years before she got married and pregnant. So her student turned out to be me and my sisters, her students. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that having that influence from my earliest memory is what formed me as a creative person. You know, certainly helped get having my mom throw me a box of crayons when I'm three years old and say, you know, draw something and show me what you did and, you know, giving me praise when I when I did that and putting my, my stuff up on the refrigerator. So, you know, that developed me at, at a, the earliest age to be a, a creative person and why I did so well throughout my academic career up to that point. And, you know, I, you know, so so that one experience was kind of an aberration with that instructor. But it was a really good lesson for me to learn looking back on it, because, as you know, you're going to come across people in your career that for whatever reason you you just lock horns with. Mm-hmm. And it be it may, may be less a reflection on your talents or abilities than it is on the relationship with that person and the personality issues you have with them. So, you know, those those personality issues throughout my career are things that I, I had to learn how to deal with. And, uh, you know, like I said, I was fired multiple times, four times in the first seven or eight years of my career. So that college experience was just kind of a foreboding of what was to come. <laughs> so what did you think? So let's jump ahead. So let's say you, you landed, where was the first place that you worked in advertising? Well, I was afraid of New York growing up and it was kind of sacrilegious to graduate Syracuse with a degree in advertising and not go to New York City. But uh, I'm, I'm not a city boy. I grew up in Connecticut in a kind of a rural area of Connecticut and New York's scared the crap out of me, to be honest. Uh, Fortunately, one of my instructors had worked in Atlanta for a few years and had some connections there. So his advice to me was, you're crazy for not going to New York, but if you want to go to New York, if you want to go to Atlanta, I got some names for you. So I and a couple of my classmates took that advice and moved down to Atlanta. And that's where I started out my career, working for a division of BBDO down there. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. My first job, I was in production doing things that I didn't want to do and really didn't know how to do simply because that was their philosophy. They didn't hire a kid out of school to be in any kind of a decision-making capacity as a creative person. They just sure. didn't believe that uh, we knew enough to do that. And they stuck me in the production, which I suffered through for a year and a half until I said, screw this. And and quit and moved to Chicago. Where in Chicago did you land? I landed at the headquarters of Foot Conan Belding. Okay. So, you know, big time, finally. So I that's finally big, yeah. I hit the big time in Chicago and lasted there about a year and a half before I got canned. You know, we were talking a little bit before the interview about where our backgrounds kind of cross over or, or, or kind of missed each other, but... I, you know, I always, I always enjoyed writing copy, but I ended up in a niche where I kind of innovated the PR aspect of, of PR for production and post, but I stayed away from the creative part, the, the copywriting part. And I never, I would go to all these agencies as a rep, you know, Wells Rich Green and BBDO New York and every agency, right? but never think I wanted to be part of those gigantic enterprises like i was i was both awed and deterred somehow right and when i you know when i think about what you were attempting to do and what you were hitting walls with i wonder if it were similar things that i would have 
faced the the corporate infrastructure like what was it at what was it at fcb that it was steeped in politics i mean when i was in doing production in atlanta i was under the radar there because i was just a peon but suddenly in chicago i was dealing with big egos and creative directors and and international accounts and it was the big time and uh, i just was not prepared for dealing with the egos and the politics of big the big agency world and mm-hmm. uh, i was pretty naive looking back and you know you either sink or swim in that environment and as you said in the introduction to this podcast i just thought that if I was talented creatively, that that would be enough to enable me to be successful in that environment. And I quickly realized that I was wrong because there were a lot, yeah. of, a lot of, of my fellow creatives who I had seen go up the corporate ladder who were really mediocre creatively, but they had a gift for you know, maneuvering themselves there, you know, among the personalities at the agency in order to not just survive, but to get a, work up, work themselves up the ladder. Yeah. Uh, and I really, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's something you learn or you, you have, you don't know about inherently, but I really, I didn't have that ability, nor did I really want to focus my energies on trying to figure out how to do that. I just hope that at some, some agency would, would appreciate me for my creative talent and um, continue to get fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, you, you make a good point, which is that if you're kind of a journeyman creative and you don't mind just being given stuff and you turn it out and then the, the creative director or the executive creative director takes the goes and does the battles and fights the battles, you get to be creative, but you won't advance you'll just you'll just stay in that slot right as opposed to being if you want to be an ecd or a group creative director you're going to have to be a political yeah animal and i had trouble keeping my mouth shut i mean when you know when listen there's bullshit in every industry but i yeah. think advertising has an ex, has a, you know extra bullshit when it comes to stuff like that because so much of it is based on people's opinions you know, when you're when you're judging an ad, whether it's good or bad, uh, it's often based on whatever the your creative director thinks is good or, or bad. And sometimes when he makes some comments that you think just don't make a lot of sense, you either have to, you know, keep your mouth shut about it and, and you know, swallow it or you have to speak up about it and try to defend yourself and argue why you think, you know, your idea makes sense and again that's where i got in into trouble because i had a tr- i had trouble keeping my mouth shut when i was exposed to some of this and yeah and learned pretty quickly that that's not going to enable you to do well in that environment what was the next step i got picked up by a small agency where instead of being one of a hundred creative people i was one of three creative people or maybe 200 okay. at FCB, there's maybe two or 300. I mean, the agency had about 1,500 people there. So there were, you know, there was a, a bunch of creative people. And suddenly I'm at a small agency that was kind of a startup. I think the whole agency had maybe nine or 10 people, and I was one of two or three creative people. So all of a sudden I had to perform and do a lot of stuff that I was still, I was still, you know, maybe. So I had maybe a year and a half experience at FCB as a creative person. And now I'm in a small agency where I'm exposed to things at a small agency that I I never would be exposed to at a big agency. So there was a whole new set of challenges. But the difference, Hirsch, was that my success there was a lot less based on my political skills than it was on my ability to perform as a creative person. Did you have a creative partner? I did. I, I did. Yeah. I started out as an art director, but I was always a very verbally thinking, 
writing art director at Syracuse, mm-hmm. they made a point that you can't just focus, you know, when you're an, an advertising person, you had to think conceptually and, and be able to think about what is the main message you, you have to get across and come up with a headline, things like that. So I was always very good at writing. I never really, when you're working with a writer, uh, you don't have to rely on your writing skills so much. But at this small agency, because we were both doing the writer would think graphically and I would think verbally oftentimes. And so, yeah, I did have a partner. He was a very talented writer and we, we did well together. That was one of the few agencies I did not get fired from. And they were actually sorry to see me leave after about a year and a half. I learned so much being in that small agency environment and felt after that experience that I had the confidence to give New York a shot. Oh, so that, so in that case, you, you, your confidence was, was bolstered. You had a really good creative collaboration going. And so did an opportunity open up in New York or you no, decided to go pursue no, it? No, like, like I did both in Atlanta and Chicago, I just felt I needed to be there. I needed to, I had a, a friend of mine who was living in New York and said that he had an opening for a roommate. And I think getting a place to live in New York is almost as hard as finding a job there. So that's what I did. And because I had some pretty good produced work, having worked at the smaller agency, I thought I would I would get a job in a, in a few weeks of lur- yeah. looking. And four or five months later, and still not finding work, I was beginning to wonder if I would ever get hired. And that's when I started. You know, I had people tell me, well, your work is okay, but you ought to consider going back taking some courses at SVA, which is not what you want to hear when you've been in the business for five or six years at that point. No. To go back to school, no. right? But that's what I did. I ended up, it's kind of funny. So I said, so I, one of the guys who said, go back to SVA, I said, well, can you recommend any, any particular instructors to take? And he recommended an instructor that required me to present him with a portfolio before he decided whether or not I was worthy to take his class. Ah, okay. Which was kind of a eye-opening experience. So I went up to his agency to present my portfolio to see if it was good enough to take his class and he ended up offering me a job. Awesome. Which, which agency was this? Terrible agency, (laughs) terrible agency. I don't even remember the name of it now. Uh, it was it was a terrible agency whose biggest account was Carlton Cigarettes. Okay. All right. And that was the job offer I got to be an assistant art director on a cigarette account. Okay. Really exciting stuff. Right. And so was that all was that essentially print or were they allowed to it do was, any broadcast? No, it it was primarily print and it was a, again another terrible job but it was it was a job in New York. Yeah. And I, I, every day that I was at that job was more motivation to, to leave that job for a real job, a better job. I Mm -hmm. mean, I hate cigarettes and I just felt like, you know, after five or six months of looking for work, I was not in a position to say no, I had rent to pay. But fortunately, again, another job that I uh, did not get, I I would, my, my career was you know, leave a job, get fired from a job, leave a job, get fired from a job. That's the way it was for the first seven or eight years of my career. And again, fortunately, after not a long time, I don't think I was there at that job for even a year because I was aggressively trying to find a better job. I, I did find another job and, and, and left that job. Right. So there we have. So we have now that's four agencies, but that's only three. There's two firings. And were you were you fired from from this shitty? Well, I was agency fired from FCB, this? so that was my first firing. Left the second Chicago job, left the first New York job, to my second New York job, which I got fired from. Okay. So the job that I went to after that cigarette agency, I got fired from, and then I got fired from two more jobs after that in New York. But let's. Let's give the audience a reward for hanging in there through these firings. And essentially what, what did happen ultimately was you realized 
or you had the opportunity to create your own, to well, create an agency in which you were Yeah, a, I was a getting partner. fired, Hirsch, but I was getting fired from increasingly better agencies. <laughs> right. Okay. Good. Like, like you were Doyle, firing like, up. Like, yeah. Like, you were getting fired like up. Like Doyle Dane Burnback, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh, yeah. With. Yeah. And that's back when Doyle Dane was still one of the best agencies, not just in New York, but in the country. I was working on the VW account and they, you know, yep. that was legend. Their, their VW work from the 60s and 70s was yeah, one of the, the reasons I got into the business. I mean, at a certain point after getting fired as many times, I was having trouble getting interviews at agencies because I had talked to all of them and uh, I was I I was forced to go through the phone book. I remember one day I I went I was going through the phone book when people I don't know if people listening know what what a phone book is. <laughs> but I was going through the phone book calling agencies um to try to talk myself into getting an interview and I remember one day I made 106 phone calls and got 103 rejections wow. which meant I got 3 interviews. Yeah. And it was at one of those interviews that actually was a major factor in turning my career around. So, it, you know, really at a certain point, it really comes down to how much you really want to do it. You know, how much you're willing to put in despite the challenges you face to just not give up and keep trying. Well, one of the interviews I got was with a, a young guy who was doing business development. And he was actually a partner in the agency. I think he was a year or two younger than me. At the time, I was probably 30, and he was like 27. And he looked at my portfolio and was really impressed with the work. And his response was, listen, we don't have an opening for you now. And he said, quite honestly, I don't know that you'd want to work at this agency because it's not that great. I, I was surprised that he was so honest about it. But... He said, I'm going to hold on to your resume, and I have a feeling we'll, we'll be talking again at some point. I don't know when, but I have a feeling our paths are going to cross again. And then about a little over two years later, I got a call out of the blue from this guy. He had left long since left the agency that I met him at and was freelancing with another guy. His name was John Bond, and the guy that he was working with was a guy named Richard Kirschenbaum. And I don't know yeah. if the name Kirschenbaum and Bond means anything. Kirschenbaum and Bond, okay. yeah. So you know it. And again, at the time, these were just two guys that were working together. And, and John, who was the account guy, said, I'm working with a young guy. We've just been collaborating for a few months, but we're pitching business. And I think Richard could really use the creative services of someone like yourself. So I said, I'd like you to meet him. And for the next year and a half, I worked with the two of them, mainly on an account called Kenneth Cole, which sure. at the time yeah. no one knew because Kenneth Cole was just starting his business. But the ads that we created for him were really getting attention because we didn't show shoes. We didn't show a big logo. They were just really witty ads of Kenneth Cole's perception on current events and somehow tying current events into shoes, which is where the creativity okay. came in. And that's why they stood out because they didn't look, look or sound like ads. And after uh, six months of doing these, they would run every couple of months in New York magazine and people started wondering who was doing these ads. I started picking up freelance work and eventually got a call from a guy who introduced himself as a new business guy who was referred to me by John Bond. And this guy was looking for a creative guy because he wanted to pitch business the way John and Richard were, which were pitching business. And uh, 20 minutes after meeting me said, we should start an agency. To, <laughs> to which I replied, what's your name again? Yeah. And that eventually led to the forming of our agency, which was called Follis and Verdi, and eventually Follis DeVito Verdi. Yeah, um, Jeff. Ellis was an amazing new business guy. I mean, how he got business meetings with clients, I, I don't, he was just an amazingly smooth talking, door kicking guy who could talk his way into anything. And so we made a really good team because I was really good both at the writing and the art direction. I was ambidextrous in that. 
and all I needed was the opportunity to do some creative work, and we would usually blow the doors off of you know whatever other agencies we were competing against, one of which was a competition for a product I had never heard of called Sorrel Ridge Jam that was a healthy all-fruit jam. And in 1988, healthy jam was a new thing. And uh, they were competing against the jam that everyone knew about, Smuggers Jam. And we were told when we met with a client if we wanted to do something competitive against Smuckers, because everyone knew Smuckers, mm-hmm. and he gave us an education in jam and told us that Smuckers jam was 90% refined sugar and high fructose corn syrup with, with right. 8% real fruit. And he said, our, our, our jam is 100% fruit and fruit juice. So, you know, we've got a very competitive story to tell. So we said, yeah, absolutely, we want to go competitive against Smuckers. The question was, how do you do that? You know, everyone, the American public, not only knew the name Smuckers, but it was like mom and apple pie and Smuckers, you know. Their commercials were your grandparents and puppy dogs and things like that. So we had to do it in a way that we had to, you know, walk that delicate line by saying why we're we're better without being mean-spirited about it. And that's where, mm-hmm. you know, some creativity came in. And we did a commercial that basically dismantled the Smuckers tagline saying with a name like Smuckers, it doesn't have to be good. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because, you know, that, <laughs> the, 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 you know, it's like David and Goliath and, and the heart of Goliath was their tagline because for 40 years they had been just forcing that tagline in the minds of the American consumer and that's where their equity was. So we felt with one stone to show, to throw, that was the target, their tagline, because it was bullshit. It was a bullshit. And it hit. Yeah, it was was memorable. It was fondly thought of by the American consumer, but, you know, in line with your podcast, there wasn't a lot of truth to it. Yeah, And so this was a case where we could actually be really, really truthful with our advertising and, and make a strong case for why people should choose Sorrel Ridge over Smuckers. And sales went up 90% the first month, and for the year went up over 50%. So his $350,000 uh, advertising budget for three months turned into a million dollar ad advertising budget because he saw such a direct result in the first few months of the TV spots that he was doing with sales. And that's rarely a case where, you know, unless you're doing a direct response campaign where you see such a direct response to the money yeah. you're, you're spending and, and the sales that you're getting. But in this case, he was seeing a direct, a direct result and just started scratch and scrape for every dollar he could find and turned a $350,000 budget into a, a million dollar budget. And, and that, that account put our agency on the map. Now this was, and you also won a ton of awards, the, the all important, you know, I, was, I wanted to, to bring this up because for that campaign, you, you won uh, top awards, you were featured in, in Adweek and all the magazines and all that stuff. And it's interesting that in that industry, awards, it's the, it's the same as for the TV. It's the same as for like entertainment with, right. the, with, with the Golden Globes and the right. Oscars and the Emmys. But in the ad business, there's this fascination till this day with awards. We just came off of the Cannes, you know, advertising right. fest being back. Right. But what is that fascination? Well, because it's... It's a business based on creativity. And creativity, when done well, can increase sales. That's the connection. You go from, you know, yeah. not everything that's award winning does that. So some clients are impressed with creative awards, and many of them aren't. What cl- all clients are impressed by are um, how, how well you sold your client's product. So as much it was, as it was exciting to be able to showcase the awards that I've won, what was more impressive about the Sorrel Ridge case was the fact that the Harvard Business Review made it a case study. 
you know, yeah. when you tell that to clients, then they want to, then they start getting impressed, right? The agencies don't really want the light shined on the creatives that much because then the creatives become more valuable and they quit or they have to be paid more more money. So for the agencies, you're right. The Harvard Review is a much more saleable thing to have. Well, it, you know, it depends on the agency, Hirsch. The creative agencies, the top agencies that I wanted to work for, were proud of the fact that their creatives won awards, you know? Yeah. They because they wanted to attract more clients based on that. It, it's kind of self-fulfilling. If you got clients that value creative work and, and they come to your agency and you do great creative work for them that, that works, then it's a way to showcase the abilities of your agencies and grow your agency based on a creative reputation. Right. So some agencies really valued the fact that you know, they were creative-driven agencies that really valued creativity. And then there were other agencies like Gray and other ones that you know of that would, would, not, be, would not use that as a lead, to prom lead story to promote their agency. Mm -hmm. um, because you could, you could grow an agency and make a lot of money uh, with clients that don't necessarily win awards for creative work. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the other side of it is that – you know, it's a business. That's the, the bottom line with everything is that, and this is another question for you, through all of your adventures, where do you shake out on the philosophical reality, the reality that, you know, business is business. We are in the business of selling a product. We're in the business of selling an image or we're in the business of moving units and right. er, an earning market share. How should we feel about our contribution if we're a creative person in the, in the so picture of that? So one of the agencies that I worked for was Doyle Dane Burnback, who the creative right. leader of that agency was a guy named Bill Burnback. You may know the, the name. So yes. he was one of the so-called legend, legends in advertising. And he was a business guy, but he was one of those business guys that believed that creativity was the heart and soul of the advertising business. And one of his quotes touched on what you, the question you just asked. He said, the creative person, creativity is not about verbal gymnastics and graphic acrobatics. The creative person in this business who is successful has learned to harness his creativity. So he makes, with every photograph he takes, with every word he writes, he makes more viv vivid, more compelling the story that he wants to tell about his product. So it's the ability to harness that creative energy and channel it with, with sound strategic thinking so it helps sell the product. Because at the end of the day, as you said, it's about sales. Best example, Hirsch, that I can give of what I just explained was what we did for Sorrel Ridge. And if you search Sorrel Ridge ad campaign, you can find it online on Vimeo because I posted it. But it started out with, like, you know, as I mentioned, our, our, the, the target that we were throwing the stone at, the heart of Smucker's equity, was their tagline. So we had 30 seconds. It was a 30-second commercial. We had to tell our story in 27 seconds. So... I started the commercial with the Smucker's tagline filling the screen. As the announcer says, for years, Smucker's has been telling you they have to be good. But did you know their, their jam is made with mostly corn syrup, refined sugar, and not a lot of fruit? And every time the announcer referenced one of these bad ingredients that goes into a jar of Smucker's preserves, the pair of hands would pop up from below the screen where it said, with a name like Smucker's, it has to be good. The last line at the bottom said, it has to be good. With In matching typeface, it's not so good. Um, it's really not so good. And I forget what we wanted to say. It sucks. But the, lawyer, the lawyers <laughs> wouldn't allow us to say, with an name like Smucker's, right. it sucks. But it pro suckers. progressively... <laughs> Smucker's has you... Has you figured for suckers. It progressively <laughs> dismantled the tagline as the voiceover 
read each ingredient that goes into Smucker's. Got and it. then we did a shot of the beauty shot of the, the Sorrel Ridge jar surrounded by fruit, as the announcer says. You know, fortunately, there's something better. Sorrel Ridge with 100, 100% fruit and fruit juice, 100% fruit and fruit juice. With a name like Sorrel Ridge, it has to be better. And so we kind of played off of the Smucker's tagline with our tagline with a name like with Sorrel Ridge, it has to be better. So it was very simple, strategically did, but very creative in that we showed the Smucker's tagline and, and actually literally dismantled it in real time as we were talking about what goes into Smucker's. So that was a combination of creativity with, with disciplined creativity with sound strategic thinking behind it. Yeah. How did Smuckers react? Well, you know, our big fear was that they could sue us. And, you know, imagine the PR you you would be getting for this. And they're going to have to prove, I would imagine, that what you said wasn't true, right. which then calls more attention to their own Absolutely. lies. Whereas if they don't sue you, they can just say, ah, you know, that's just a cheap shot, and whatever. They can say they're anything. Gonna, they're going to try to sue you for defamation or whatever, but uh, talk to your own lawyers and ask them if if they think that Smuckers would have a strong case for defamation because basically you're, you're, what you're saying, as much as it might ruffle their feathers and piss them off, you're not saying anything that's not true. Now, back then, when truth came up against fiction, there was some barometer that we could use to d differentiate between fact and fiction. These days, a lot of people will say we live in a post-truth environment where the truth is relative, alternative facts, fake news, all of that shit. So circling back around to the ups and downs of the industry, and this was certainly a, a high point and set in motion a period of, you know, incredible productivity and thriving as a creative. What succeeded that run? We brought Sal on and changed the name to Follis DeVito Verdi. So we just continued picking up business and growing our agency. And I, you know, in a three-year period, I won something like three dozen awards, which was pretty validating after getting fired as many times as I had by other agencies <laughs> and really questioning my creative talent, especially reflecting back on that Syracuse University experience where I was told that I had no talent. So um, it was a yeah. nice validation. Eventually, I had to confront my business partner who I felt was breaching our, our partnership contract and break up the agency. Uh, which was very unfortunate, I think. When I first met him, I thought I was really glad that he was on my side until I realized he wasn't and no. uh, yeah. had to confront him with some things and eventually take some legal action. And it, you know, it forced me to, um, to split up the agency and go solo, which was pretty scary because I didn't think I could survive without a business partner. And ended up doing that for a few years. But the, the interesting timing of that, Hirsch, was that um, that was right around the time that the internet became a thing. So uh -huh. I was intrigued with that, put up my first website in 1996 and started paying attention to that. And eventually starting started, I was one of the first people in 2004 to start an online marketing consulting business via Skype, where I was do doing oh, this wow. uh, with business owners around the country, giving them marketing consulting, which often turned into specific pro projects. Out of the co consulting, we would determine maybe they needed a TV commercial, maybe they needed a, a better website, maybe they needed a tagline. Whatever it was they needed, that yeah. turned into specific pro projects that I was able to offer a, a, a dedicated fee for, for doing that project. So I did that for over 10 years as a consultant uh -huh. and then got involved in more digital video, started something called Big Idea Video in 2013, which was dedicated digital video, which 
at that point, I was pretty good at, at, at creating, was able to offer that to a lot of clients who had websites, but just needed a lot more compelling video as well. Right. Well, the consulting that you describe is interestingly kind of what I'm doing now, because what I realize is a lot of people don't know what they want or need. They know something's missing, something in their message, something right. in there. It all begins. Also, I feel creatively, we're to a great extent, we're reactors. We react to a problem or we re most, most often a problem or we react to a an idea that they have about who they are and sure. what they want to say. And we go from there. So to put it out, you know, to just be a writer for hire or a creative for hire sometimes misses a step, right? Unless they have oh, yeah. an in-house market, you know, CMO or somebody that, you know, that really has a vision for the creative. But really, I find that sitting down with people and working with them on something simple, some small statement or some uh, small document or project is a good way to open up the door to what it is they really need. And then they can hire me yeah. to, 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 to create what As they you need. Know, it's all about developing a relationship. And I yeah. would find myself at networking events. And if I introduced myself as an adver advertising guy, they wouldn't want to talk to me. But if I said that I'm a marketing expert, then uh, that opened the door for conversations about some of the things that were happening at the time, the digital medium. So I, I, I realized that they were just looking for someone that they could trust that could help guide them about that. And I, I just realized I had to figure out a way to get myself in front of these people and figure out a way to charge them for my expertise. And uh, half the right. time I felt like a therapist talking to these people because their, their businesses were so, they were so emotionally wrapped up in their business as any small business owner is. So I decided to brand myself as a marketing therapist as kind of right. a unique yeah. uh, catchphrase to get them curious about what I did when I was at a networking event. The last thing I wanted to say was, oh, I'm a marketing consultant. You know, that's like, you know, you're, you're, yeah. you're a bus business well, coach. I didn't want it. So if, yeah, it's, it sounds it so does. dry and, and it's not what we it's a do. Commodity. It sounds and, like a commodity. And the therapy thing, I would, I would call myself a message therapist, but I think they would, people would read it wrong most of the time and assume that was a typo and then come to me to give them back rubs. And that would, I found that could either be disastrous or I found delightful. out that at these networking events, which is what I would spend a lot of time trying to uh, stir up some interest. Um, if I set you, you know, when people ask you what you do, you've got three seconds to respond to that. And what you say in those three yep. seconds are either going to get them to want to continue talking to you or excuse themselves to talk to someone else or get a drink. So I, I found yeah. that if I said, well, I'm a marketing therapist, at least they would say, excuse me. <laughs> right. I, I, right. I, I, I didn't quite get that. You're what? And so that's, that's right. again, that's what, I uh, enabled me to get into a conversation. And then I then it was kind of a fun way to brand myself on my business card. I had a picture of a couch and I called it Follis Marketing Therapy. And then I could build around content, do podcasts and do creative digital content that got into exactly what marketing therapy was about. So it became fun. It became a fun brand. Yeah to kind of build off of. And that's what enabled me to, uh, you know, to build my own brand. And, you know, we talk about brand building, how to stand out. Uh, so you don't want to, you don't position yourself as a commodity. How do you stand out? And, and it was based on my own experience of talking to these people because I did feel like, you know, it was part marketing advice and part therapy. And, you know, one of the mm -hmm. things I, I volunteered early, early years ago, I, I was on a telephone crisis line where they put you through 50 hours of training dealing with people who some, in some cases are suicidal. So you have to know how to talk to these people and more importantly, know how to listen to these people. 
because if you don't say the right thing, they're going to jump off a bridge, right, or jump out of their window. Mm -hmm. So uh, that really uh, trained me how to listen to people, really kind of get, get to the pain point, get to the core of what these people, you know, as you referenced earlier, right, with, with your experience of talking to people. And a, a lot of marketing yeah. people aren't so good at listening. They're very good at talking. So I would start out, if I could engage them in some marketing therapy, I would just start asking them some questions and get them to talk about so I could really hone in, as you referenced earlier, of what was really at the heart of what they were struggling with. And sometimes what they thought the problem was was really not the problem th th that they should be focused on. Again, they, the, the other problem, Hirsch, is that these people are so enmeshed with their own business, they don't have the ability to stand back and look at it yeah, objectively. And that's what I was able to bring to them and, and give them a, a, an, an honest, objective perspective that they really appreciated, you know? Perspective is in large part what, we're, what we bring. So um, before we go, let me ask you, at this moment in your adventure, what brings you the greatest joy? Um, you mean right now or, or yeah. Having yeah. conversations like this, to be honest with you, because I've, I've done a couple of creative projects, one of which I shared with you, a series called True Stories in Advertising, which I know you will, I know yeah, you will I get that. a kick out of. And I yeah. also made a documentary, yeah. um, which was really a fun, exciting challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, doing other things that give me personal uh, satisfaction, but I miss having conversations about the career that I spent 35 years of my life doing. So to talk to anyone who um, might value anything I, I have to s share in a conversation like this, to me is a lot of fun. So, you know, since, since I discovered Podmatch about six months ago, I've been having a lot of fun talking with people who host podcasts on various things related to uh, business or career or marketing or overcoming challenges, you know, any number of flavors that relate to my personal experience in my career and talking to people around the world, many of them, you know, overseas, to me, it's just a lot of fun, you know, to share anything that might uh, inform yeah. or inspire or encourage uh, other people uh, in whatever they're doing, you know? I hope my audience gets a lot out of this one because there is so much that people need in terms of resources, help, perspective, like yeah. you said. You know, they, it's very, we're very close to our own lives and a little perspective is always a good thing. Oh, what did this person do? You know, how the did they deal for with any that? podcaster like yourself is the same challenge that I had that I described when I started doing marketing consulting. I mean, there's so many podcasters, just like there were so many marketing consultants. The question then becomes, well, how do you distinguish yourself? Right. Especially with the, with, yeah. with the pot, with the pandemic, Hirsch, I, I think um, the number of podcasters have, have grown, you know, 20 fold in the past two years everyone in their everyone in their sure. grandmother now has a podcast yes. <laughs> and the question is how do you how do you build an audience right my strategy is to go on as many grandmother's podcasts as i can and and hopefully uh cross promote right. with their audience i don't think i told you this but um i started learning about podcasting in 2005 and by february of 06 had the we should definitely chat for a minute about your experience with the early in the early days of podcasting which weren't that long ago but what was it like i loved it i mean for the same reasons you seem to be enjoying it i just thought it was the most amazing thing that you could sit in front of your computer when i discovered podcasting a light bulb went over my head and said I wonder if I could use this as a very juicy worm to put on a hook to try to get business owners to talk to me.
because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do what I did when I was looking for work, you know, in 1988, right. uh, going through the phone book anymore. anymore. Um, but if I send an email from my virtual assistant inviting them to be a guest on my podcast where allowing them to talk about their business for for 30 minutes maybe that would allow me to develop a rapport with these guys and eventually maybe get some business yeah. out of it so that was my thinking so i did that for about 7 years until i just realized that it had kind of run its course yeah. and uh, yeah i was wondering if that point. if i use the term message therapist whether whether I would be appropriating your marketing therapy uh, moniker, or whether there would be enough of a of a difference that it would be okay to use it, you have to. I'll have to I'll have to call yeah, my lawyers, Hirsch, yeah. and see. We'll if have to I'll call 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 that. call the call the Smuckers legal team, <laughs> and and figure out. Well, you can if you go to fallisinc.com, you will see mm -hmm. a link that says "Need Marketing Help." And if you click on that option, you will see how I presented my marketing therapy when okay. I put that up in 2004. So, you know, the 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 look of it is pretty yeah. dated. It looks like it was put up in 2004. I'd, I'd give it a facelift if I was doing it today. But at least you can see what I cool. was doing back then. Well, that's the funny thing is that we're all – we, we have to at some – Point, even though we're in the business of helping other brands and other individuals and entrepreneurs brand themselves and message themselves, we have to have a reckoning with ourselves in terms of how we package our services. And sometimes it's the hardest thing. It's like Dr. Heal Thyself, you know. I, yeah, I have to tell you, uh, the people who are worst at yeah. <laughs> branding and marketing themselves were other marketing people. And all of them, I wrote an article. Yeah. I said, your most important client is you. I wrote that article 20 years ago. And basically it was, it was me, you know, thinking about what we're discussing and, and just reminding myself why my business is my, I am my most important client and had to really focus number one, all my marketing talent, my creativity yeah. toward my yeah. own business, my own yeah. brand and do that. Because that's the first thing that any prospective client is going to be looking at when they decide whether or not they want to pay me, you know, three hundred dollars yeah. an that's, hour that's it. for my services. Is you know we're we're only as strong as our weakest link when it comes to promoting ourselves. That's Being on this is a really fun kind of wide ranging conversation. I appreciate it. It was really like I said. This is one of the things I really enjoy now, and it's it's not often that I come across someone who intersects. Uh, in, in different professional uh, ways like you and I do, which, again, is one reason why I'm going to ask you to let me know after you watch a couple of those true stories in advertising, just your impressions, because as a, you know, coming from your background, I'd be really, really Will curious do. what you have to say about about those. Will do. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.